Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Praise be to God. I want to thank everybody for coming into my home and welcome you from SoundCloud or wherever you're coming from all over the world. I praise God that you're listening and that you're getting fed and all those that you keep returning. I, I'm real thankful that God has brought you along to help me, give me encouragement in this ministry, teaching. And I had a friend say to me just the other day that I'm doing good. And I said, well, how am I doing good? And he said, well, you're doing good. He says, because you're teaching the Bible. And that's what God's been speaking to me all along. There's just not a lot of churches out there that are actually teaching the truth anymore, just teaching the Bible. But that is one thing that you will get here, Gospel Saving Church. You will hear the Bible, and you'll get taught the Bible, and you'll get taught the realities of the truth, and, and not some sugar-coated nonsense like a lot of churches are teaching to this day. So if you guys want to join me in a word of prayer, we'll get our service started. We'll get rolling up, and we'll get to our title and our chapter and our verses and all that stuff. But if you guys want to join me, first, what a word of prayer. I ask the Lord to bless the service. Lord, thank you so much for bringing us here today. Thank you so much, Lord God, that you've given me all the wisdom that you've given me this week to work on this message, Lord. And thank you, Lord, of course, for your word. Lord, I just want to—I just tell you that I appreciate your word, Lord, and I'm really, really thankful for the guidance that it gives me in my everyday life. And my life as a whole, Lord, and the guidance that you offer to all mankind. Lord, your word is like the number one published book in all time. Lord, there's, there's been no more copies printed of any other book in the whole world other than the Bible. And Lord, it just shows your heart that you want to save mankind. It's your heart, Lord, our salvation, our walk with you, our peace with you, our relationship with you. And so, Lord, I just pray that <clears throat> those things would come to light today. Lord, that people would be fed the truth, Lord, and that the truth would set them free, Lord, or, or make them stronger in you, Lord, whichever is the case which either, which, with each heart that you're dealing with today. I just thank you so much for your love, for mankind, and for your grace and for your mercy. Lord, I pray you bless the message, bless my mouth, help me to speak well, and, and just to proclaim your truths, Lord, with power, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, of course, Lord, and and I pray as I prayed already today, Lord, that your power would be here and online and all over the world, wherever this message is listened to, Lord, your power would be evident as I'm speaking, Lord, by your Holy Spirit to change lives and draw others to Christ and build up your children strong in you. We love you and we praise you, dear God. We pray you keep the enemy out of this place today. Keep us from distractions and help us to focus on what you have to say to us today. We love you and praise you, Lord, and we thank you for this opportunity to serve you again today. And we ask these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right. If you guys want to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, verses 23 through 30, I will read them and give you the title after my thoughts from last week. After I humbly have to give my thoughts from last week, so I, I need to uh, start off. Last, uh, the recap for last week, what good thing shall I do to, that I may have eternal life? That was the name of the sermon last week. And I want to start off by quickly speaking a little bit about the mistake I made. I made a mistake last week, you see, I, and my beautiful wife was gracious enough to point it out to me, and I'm thankful that she did. And I had said that the rich young ruler in our context last week was a, just, a, I saw him as a rich young man. And I said, well, for the benefit of the doubt, well, you know, because the New King James translator said, you know, he was a rich young ruler that, that, you know, I didn't see it in the context. So I thought, well, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, but I can't be sure about that. Well, as I said earlier, 
After service, my beautiful wife was quick to point out to me that Luke 18, 18, which is the parallel passage to Matthew 19, 16, where Luke 18 says, Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So that shows us that the man's status really in life was that he was a rich young ruler, not just a rich young man. You know, so anyway, I apologize for the error. Anybody who caught it, you know, the fa- the funny thing is, is, as she was telling me after service, the Lord was quickening to my heart and telling me, you know, I told you that, Ed, but, you know, you, you weren't listening that well. And, you know, I, I admit that sometimes I have that problem. I need to slow down some and I need to listen to God a little bit more carefully than I do sometimes. I get going and get so fast, you know, get going so fast and I forget. So I apologize. But, but aside from that, that did not take away, I hope, from what I really wanted you guys to glean or take away from last week's message. You know, what we spoke about last week. There's no good work or deed that you or I or anybody could do to merit favor with God so that we could earn our way to heaven. You see, the Bible says that salvation is a gift of God. And a gift that's earned is not a gift at all. Something that's earned are wages, not a gift. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace that you are saved, by faith, and that not of yourself, not of works, least any man should boast. It's a gift of God. So the Bible tells us plainly that the only way by which we must be saved is to respond to God's calling, because God's the one that calls. We'll see that today a little bit later. And we have to make the step or take the step of repentance toward Him and put our faith in Christ and go through Jesus to be saved. If there was another way to be saved, and I have argued this point before with other individuals in the past, um, if there was another way to be saved, if there was something at all that we could do in our power to earn or merit salvation before God, then Jesus would not have had this conversation with God the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, 39, where we read, He, Jesus, went a little farther, fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You see, right there, Jesus was asking God the Father, Lord, dear God, my Father, if there's another way that people can get saved, if there's another way that people can earn eternal life or gain it some other way, please, Lord, let this cup pass from me. I don't really want to go to the cross. It's going to hurt. I'm going to die. The sins of the world are going to be laid upon me. I don't really want to go through that. Please, Lord, if there's another way, don't make me go this route. But we all know the past. The past is the past. We still celebrated it today. God made Jesus Christ go to the cross and be crucified to make atonement for our sins, to become that propitiation. Because the Bible says that he was the spotless lamb of God that came to take away the sins of the world. And no matter what we could ever do, our best good works could never pay the penalty that our sin costs ever it needed that the sin our sin sacrifice needed to be a perfect spotless lamb of god the perfect one the one that had never sinned 
the one that could take our punishment upon himself and pay for our sins. So, always keep that in mind. There's no good work that anyone could ever do in order to make it to heaven and earn or merit salvation from God. And that was what's most important in our sermon from last week. I hope that's what you guys took away from it. So praise God. Let's uh, get on to this week's message. The title of this week's uh, message, It's Easier for a Camel to Go Through the Eye of a Needle than for a Rich Man to Enter the Kingdom of God. A little bit longer than my normal titles, and I won't repeat it a second time this week like I normally do. It's just basically, it's, it's right out of our scripture today. It's uh, Matthew 19, 24, where I got the title from, where God spoke the title to my heart this morning, actually. So let's read Matthew 19, 23 through 30, and let's go through it. If you want to join me or just listen along. Matthew 19, 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, he repeats it twice. Remember what I said about when Jesus repeats things twice or when the Bible repeats things twice. It's kind of like capital letters. He's making this accentuated point here. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Look at their explanation there. And Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Then Jesus said to them, Surely I say to you that in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. All right. Praise God. So backing up to the end of last week's message to start out back to verse 23. Remember the way the rich young ruler responded to Jesus Christ telling him the surefire way to get to heaven. Look at verse 22 again. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Isn't that so sad? Jesus gave him the absolute way. No work. There was no, like, you know, well, you have to, you know, trudge up the hill, uh, you know, 20 miles an hour and, and you know, with, with, with 100 pounds of weight on your back and you have to, you know, jump through hoops and they've got to be in fire. And, and you, he didn't, Jesus didn't tell him that. He basically told him, remember, repentance toward God and away from your sin and faith in Jesus Christ. And, you know, of course, <laughs> repentance was selling all that he had, you know. He basically traded eternal riches, this young man did, for the temporary filthy rags of wealth. This is so sad. In my 15 years almost of ministry, I have seen many people reject this true path of salvation. Not necessarily in this way. Some I have. But I've laid down the true path of salvation just like Jesus did with the rich young ruler here. And they walked away and just basically just, you know, like, 
I can't do it. I won't do it. I won't give up me. I won't give up eternity. You know, I won't give up what I have and my goods and my wealth or whatever I have in order to follow Christ. I just won't do it. And they walk away. And I could tell you how Jesus felt here because how I felt in the past is it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking when you lay the truth of salvation down to somebody and they can have everything for eternity and they trade what they could have in eternity for what they have now for this filth of this world. So as this fellow is is walking away from this greatest gift ever given to mankind, because he won't just give up the gods of, of this world, money, wealth, and stuff, okay, Jesus finds a moment to teach his disciples about the dangers of wealth. In verse 23, look at it again. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. The word there for rich in the Strong's Concordance is defined as wealthy or abounding in material possessions. So Jesus is referring here to the type of person who's very wealthy. Someone who's very well-to-do. Maybe somebody that doesn't even have to work. A, a kind of guy like the rich young ruler. We, there's a lot of those people in our world today. Just somebody that has everything that they could ever want or thought they could ever want before they came rich because whenever you're rich, it doesn't matter. You always want more. You never really feel you have enough. That's what keeps you striving for more money and more things. That's the kind of the deception of wealth there. So he's talking about the type of person who's very, very, very wealthy, very well-to-do servants and, you know, just has all kinds of things and, you know, makes a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of money. And he sadly tells us here that it's hard for this type of person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Just how hard is it, does Jesus say, for a wealthy person to enter heaven? Read verse 24. He goes through it again. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember what I said when I was just reading it over quickly. Whenever we see an accentuated, a repeating of oneself, This means that it's doubly important that Christ is trying to really drive home the point of it is almost, it's pretty much impossible for somebody that's wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. But that's pretty hard saying. That's pretty hard indeed. In fact, you know, when you think about how hard that is, that's like, uh, you know, if I had to imagine the difficulty of this, you know, what I imagine Jesus saying here, I mean, think about it, the camel to go through the eye of a needle. I mean, it's, it's literally, it's, there's no way. It's impossible. It's, it's skating up a mountain covered in ice with roller skates on or with ice skates on, with no poles. You just, you can't even begin to start up the hill. You take a step, you slide down. There's no way you're going to do it. It's impossible. And this is the, the, the situation that Jesus is describing here. It's an impossibility for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of heaven. So why would having lots of wealth make it hard for a person to get to heaven? Well, very interestingly, the Bible is not silent on this subject. There's a guy named Agur, or Agur, however you want to say it, in Proverbs. And he gives one perspective in Proverbs 30, 8 through 9, where he says to the Lord in kind of like a prayer, he says, Remove falsehood and lies far from me. He's talking to God. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me. So, Lord, 
please just give me what I need. Give me my provision. Just, you know, Lord, provide for me what I need. Don't, don't make me really, really, really poor. And please, God, don't make me really, 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 really wealthy. Look what he goes on to say, verse 9. Least I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or least I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. You see, when a person has a lot of wealth, the idea is, and they're really, really, really wealthy, is it's very easy to like what Agur said. I'm full. Ah, I deny you. Who's the Lord? I mean, I've got everything I need. You know, I, I've, man, I've got it in abundance. Who's God? I did this all by me. Look at how look at how wealthy I am. You know, look at all the great wealth and riches that I have. Who who's the Lord? I don't need the Lord. You see, a person doesn't have to rely on God as much when they're rich as when they're just, you know, medium. You really have to rely on God when you're poor, but then when you're poor, if you can't afford to feed your family, of course, like Agur said, you might be you might be tempted to go steal and, you know, if you have nothing to eat, you may and then profane God. So a person that doesn't have to, a person doesn't really have to rely on God if they're super, super wealthy and they have everything they need and plus in abundance. It really does seem as if having wealth and abundance does something to people. I mean, really, if you think about the ways in which, you know, if you've ever had dealings with a wealthy person or a rich person, they're different than the average working Joe. You know, a lot of wealthy people and, you know, abundantly wealthy people are very snobbish. They're very rude. I mean, a lot of them, really, they're, they're, they live godless lives. Because, in a sense, they have everything that they need. They're, they, you know, you talk to them and they, they're above you. You know, they're just hoity-toity and they're just, you know, they're really just not the average person. They're, they're, they're love, there's no love. And you know, they may love those that, you know, are benefiting them. But other than that, they're just kind of like, you know, they're standoffish and they're they're, you know, they're kind of uh, arrogant. You know, arrogant would describe somebody that's rich and wealthy. And another aspect, a reason or aspect of having that having wealth can make it impossible for a person to get to heaven. Money, stuff, abundance can what? Can become a god to us, which is which was the rich man's problem. Our, your money and your wealth can become your god. That is whom. You can serve your stuff, your wealth, your money. Remember, Jesus warned us of this in Matthew 6, 24. He said, no one can serve two masters. For And the context here is wealth, money, you know, mammon. We'll get to that. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The idea behind mammon is things, stuff. Wealth, prosperity, that's mammon. Kind of like the spirit of those things, you know. And no one can serve two of those things. You'll love the one and hate the other. You're either going to love money or you'll love God. Who's your God? And a lot of times people that are wealthy will choose that wealth and money is their God. They, they'll work all that they do just for that money and they won't give any place to God in their lives. Which is why we read in verse 24, Jesus said, you know, that it'd be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get to heaven. This is an amazing statement. It's amazing indeed. If it is truly the case, which I believe it to be, 
I really believe that this is literally what he meant. That what he's really saying here is that it's impossible for a rich man to get to heaven. So the idea and the thought is, and this has been going around for longer than me and you, it's been going around for ages. Was Jesus really being literal in what he said about a rich man? It'd be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which you need to think about. Eye of a needle, it's, it's, a, it's a pinhead or smaller. And a camel's this great big beast, and it's just not going to happen. Was Jesus being literal here with what he said? I mean, certainly. Could he really have been being literal? I mean, a big old camel, eye of a needle. Why didn't he just say, rich people aren't getting into heaven? Because that's really what it amounts out to. So certainly, he must not have been speaking literally, right? Well, I don't believe that, but that is what the certain beliefs are. There is a belief that's going around today, even though there's no archaeological proof for this, but there's a belief that's going around today that in the, in the wall around Jerusalem, there was this hole or there was this gate, that, that, this special gate in, inside of a smaller gate that people are saying, now, oh, this was the eye of the needle. And really, a, a camel, the only way, and then they come up with this big elaborate story, the only way a camel could really get through that, and so this is what Jesus really meant, is that the camel has to get on their knees, and it has to drop all its wealth, and it has to get rid of all its stuff, and it has to, and then, and only then can it get through this little hole, and this little gate, and then the rich person, the rich person even would have to shed all that he has, and, and then he'd have to get off and go through in a real humble way, and rich people didn't want to, you know, humble themselves and, and bow down, well... Again, there is absolutely no archaeological proof to this, uh, this gate or passageway called the Eye of the Needle. It's not written about. It's not in any archaeological proof. There's no, no you know, there, there's, there's, there is a still a wall of Jerusalem still standing, and it's still up, and it's called the Wailing Wall, and there's no such picture of this anywhere at all. So it's ridiculous to me that people just don't take what Jesus says to be literal. In fact, I hate that. I hate it when people don't take the words of Jesus literally. People try to allegoricalize the whole Bible, and they don't, they don't think that God's word actually means what God really said. You know, in the Bible, we do have things that we could take not literally. For instance, we have the parables of Jesus. You know, where he says, and again he gave them a parable. Well, a parable is a story that was designed to show us and them back then an idea, but it wasn't something that really literally happened. Jesus was given a, a, just like a story to help us see a picture. Most parables, all parables probably you could say would not be literal. But his, his basic, simple teachings about like here how it's impossible for our wealthy man to get to heaven it's it's always literal i never see it any other way so why did i say jesus was being literal here and he really meant that it's easier for a literal camel to go through the literal eye of a needle than for a literal real life rich man to go to a literal heaven well i went to strong's because there's actually proof outside of just what i said there's actually proof that we can see, that we can find studyable evidence and proof that shows that Jesus was really talking about a literal camel trying to go through the eye of a literal needle. And what is it? I went to Strong's Concordance and I looked up the definition of each key word here in the original Greek. So I looked up eye of the needle and camel and guess what I found? You just wouldn't believe it. Guess what I found? 
Well, I found that the eye meant a literal hole or eye of a needle. That was the definition. Literal hole or eye of a needle. Needle meant, wow, a literal needle. And a camel meant, guess what? A literal camel. It wasn't anything allegorical. There wasn't anything, you know, special. There was no uh, special passageway meaning or anything like that. He literally meant what he meant. He said what he meant. He meant what he said. It's very simple. But even here in Scripture, believe it or not, there's one more proof that Jesus was being literal here about how hard it really was for a rich man or a wealthy person to get to heaven. If you want to look at verse 25, look at how the disciples respond to what Jesus said. Verse 25, when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished. Well, if there was some just hole and all the camel had to do was get on his knees and shed all his weight and go through this little hole, why would that be greatly astonishing to anybody? All they had to do was get the camel down on its knees, take the packs off, and then the guy had to bend down and then walk the camel through. That wouldn't be greatly astonishing to me. I'd be just like, wow, well, that's, well that'd be difficult, but yeah, I mean, I could see that. You know, I could picture that, you know, the you know, rich man shedding his stuff, you know, and this thing. So they were greatly astonished, saying... Listen to this phrase. Listen to this question. Who then can be saved? They didn't take it to be allegorical. They took him to be absolutely literal. They thought, well then, well then if that's the case, because if you think to yourself, think of a, a camel, this huge, probably 800 to two, you know, to 1500 pound beast, a burden that you ride that carries this stuff, fitting through a pin size hole and the end of a needle where you put the thread in, well, that's a pretty impossible idea. I, I mean, I, I think of that, and I go, that's, well, that's ridiculous. I mean, a camel could step on a needle and break it, and forget about the eye, the whole needle itself. And yet, look at their response. Who then can be saved? If it's that impossible, Jesus, then who can be saved? There's no, a camel, there's no way a camel is getting through the eye of a needle. It's impossible that, that who then can be saved. So, so the disciples' reaction shows that they believe that, that Jesus was literally talking about a camel trying to go through the literal eye of a needle. And here's one more, actually. If Jesus hadn't meant it to be literal, if Jesus was meaning this to be allegorical or, or that it would just be difficult, you know, for a camel to get on its knees and go through, then he had... A lot of time, he had an opportunity right here next, actually, to correct them. He had the perfect opportunity to straighten out his disciples' misunderstanding right away. Read verse 26. Look what he says. But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Hey, right there, all he had to say was, Hey, guys, wait, wait, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What do you mean? Hey, all, I'm just talking about they just have to shed everything. You know, just... Get rid of everything that's heavy on you. Get, you know, like a rich man, like I told the rich man, you know, just sell everything you got. Basically go destitute, be poor, be nothing, and then, you know, just shed all that weight and then go through that tiny hole, just you, into the kingdom of heaven. But he didn't. He said, hey, I understand what you're saying. With God, with you, with man, all things are, these things are impossible. Yeah, a camel going through the eye of a literal needle hole, yeah, that's impossible. Well, yeah, guys, with man, that's impossible. But you know what? With God, with the Lord God, even that which you think is impossible, hey, with him, that's possible. 
God, God can cause a camel to go through the eye of a literal needlehead. So if man could have done it by himself, why did Jesus say, with God, it was possible? Uh, God doesn't have to make it possible for a camel to, to lose all its bags and for a guy to drop everything he has and even get naked and crawl through a little hole. That doesn't have, that's not an impossibility thing. So you see, Jesus could have straightened him out right away, but yet he confirms that salvation for a rich man is impossible. But we have to stay here for just a moment. Back to the disciples' question. Verse 25 is a general one for all people, not just for the wealthy. The disciples ask him again, who then can be saved? That's kind of a general question. That's not even really addressing rich people. Who then can be saved? They ask. It's a question for all people of today, even for then and for today. And the answer Jesus gave them being for all humanity, not just for the wealthy person, verse 26, with men, this salvation is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. See, Christ makes a huge point here, but it also changes his message about the rich, about the wealthy, not being able to get to heaven just a bit. See, Jesus made the point that no person, no matter who they are, can save themselves or save them souls on their own so that they could go to heaven. It's funny because that's actually what we were just talking about last week. What good thing must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And we just kind of talked about this last week. Well, there's no good thing Jesus got around to that unless you kept the whole of the law perfect from birth into death. And so he goes back here again. And he basically saying, no matter who you are, no matter what kind of person you are or what your name is or how old you are, nobody can save themselves. With man, salvation is impossible. But with God, salvation is possible. You see, the Bible says that salvation is of God. God and Christ, our Savior of all of mankind. Isaiah 43, the Bible records, For I am the Lord your God, God speaking, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave you Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. Okay, so God referring to himself. This would be Jehovah God of the Old Testament. I, the Holy One of Israel. This would be God the Father, your Savior. Hosea 13.4. These are all Old Testament. Yet I am the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt. And you shall know no God before me. For there is no Savior besides me. And of course, we know from the New Testament, Jesus is God, so which makes him their saviors together. They're both saviors of mankind. And not only does the Bible say, because God even goes a little bit further. So yes, God is the savior. He is the one that saves us, but he goes a little bit further. The Bible goes a little bit further and says that God and Christ are not only savior, but that in fact, Jesus says in John 6, no one can even come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus just said, not only is God the Savior, not only is God the Redeemer, but God is also the one that will draw you and call you to me. Because if he doesn't call you and draw you to me, you're not getting saved. Period. The end. So God is not only the one who saves, 
but he's also the one who does the drawing and the calling of us as well. Now, I want to hold on here for a second. If that makes you nervous because it doesn't seem as if you have any part to play here in your salvation, you may have heard a preacher even say, you know, there are a lot of reformists or a lot of Calvinist preachers that'll say, well, because, you know, all these scriptures you see that, see, God is the one who saves. God is the one who calls. God is the one who draws. God is the one who elects. And you're either elected as one of God's chosen people and then God chooses to save you from the foundations of the world or you're not. And if you're not, they say, well, there's nothing you can do. And the Bible, they say, doesn't say anything that anybody could do to change God's heart in that. And they pull some scriptures out of Romans and so on and so forth. But yet, don't be so nervous because that's not truthful what they're telling you. Can't listen to them. They're wrong. And don't worry because I have Bible verses to back it up just like they do for theirs. Yet I take the Bible literally, not allegorically, and I don't just take the verses that I want to choose, I take them all. You see, the Bible says in John 3.16, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in Him would not perish and have everlasting life. And listen, if God loves everyone in the world, he is drawing all men to Jesus Christ in the hope that everyone gets saved. And you say, well, Pastor Ed, where? Because I'm a reformer or I'm a Calvinist and I believe that God is the one that elects and so on and so forth. Well, I challenge you with 2 Peter 3, 9. The Bible says the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And who is the all? The all is the whole world. God loves everybody. God wants everybody to get saved. That's his desire. Not that he only picks some or only elects some. God loves us all and wants us all to come to repentance. There, that's not all. And there's even more than these two I have here. Acts 17, 26, and 27, Paul talks about how God is not far from any person on the planet. And he's speaking to heathens when he says this. He was at the Areopagus, speaking to Greek philosophers. So this wasn't like he was talking to the church. And he says, God is not far from any one of us. He's not far at all. And and in fact, He has put us in the time that we're in and in the location that we're in so that we'd seek him. In his hope, Paul goes on to say, Paul's or God's hope here is that we would grow for him and find him. You see, so God calls, God draws, God does the saving, but God expects us to seek him. God expects expects us to grow for him. God hopes that will find him. So yes, the, God does all the drawing and all the calling and all the saving of mankind, but our part is to respond to his calling and his drawing and seek him and find him and receive the gift that he longs to give to all peoples. God longs to save the world For God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in it would not perish and have everlasting life. But there is a way that we have to receive this gift. So what is God's desire? How does he show us that he wants us to receive his gift? Well, you go to verse 27. The disciples emulate it perfectly. We read verse 27. 
Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? You see, when we realize God is drawing us, because God will draw everyone at different points in their lives, our part is to respond, just like the disciples said they did here in this verse. What did they do breaking it down? What did they say? Lord, we have... Go back to 27. See, we have left all and followed you. We've dropped everything, Lord. We've dropped it all. We've left it all. What is that called? That's called repentance toward God and away from your life, away from sin, away from you as the master of your life. Repentance toward God. And we, they say, and we have followed you. What would that be? Another translation, what would that be? We have put our faith in Jesus Christ and we've decided to follow you. Well, Repentance toward God and faith toward Jesus Christ. Isn't that what we just talked about last week? Again, Jesus is talking about it here. God shows it here to us in the disciples' reaction. Hey, we've, we've, we've lost everything. We've given up everything. We, we did what you told the rich young ruler to do. You told the rich young ruler, hey, sell all that you got and come and follow me. Peter says, Jesus, we've done all that. What, what, what else, you know, what, what shall we have? And like I said, God is continuously bringing this powerful, this powerful idea up. Salvation is that important to Jesus that it just keeps coming up. So back to our scripture in verse 27, Peter says here to Jesus, we have responded in the ways God told us to. We did even what you told the rich young ruler to do just, just a minute ago or just a little bit ago. Now therefore, what shall we have? Or you could say, what reward are we, your disciples, going to have for responding to God and, you know, to his calling and drawing us to you? I think, personally, I kind of like Peter. A lot of people don't like Peter, but I kind of like Peter. He was very bold. I don't know that I would have been this bold to ask this type of question. I mean, Peter just steps up and says, hey, we've done what you said. What shall we have? He didn't say, Jesus said, so we've done what, you know, you told the rich young ruler, are we saved? And he didn't say that. He said, well, what shall we have? He's kind of bold here. But, you know, if you think about it, Peter was just taking Jesus at his word. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. So he was just kind of taking Jesus at his teaching. Hey, Jesus, you said that if we do this, well, you know, we're supposed to not store our treasures here on earth, but store our treasures in heaven. What shall we have if, you know, because we did what you said. So what reward did Jesus say that they received from responding to God's call? Verse 28, good news for them. So Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, so in the resurrection, that regeneration, another word for uh, resurrection, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, so this is after everything's all done, after the resurrection and everything, God's all destroyed everything and made a new heavens, new earth, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. What is he saying? That's where the disciples will be. The disciples that follow Jesus, these 12, but of course minus Judas. I believe Paul was the 12th that God wanted. So those 12, I believe, will be sitting on the 12 12 thrones right next to God. 
And they'll be judging God's people. They'll be judging Israel. And that's what they'll get. They'll actually be in God's throne room, sitting next to God, judging Israel. How about that? That's a pretty awesome verse for them. That's pretty powerful for them. I mean, I've kind of prayed that, Lord, and when I get there, you know, when I get to be with you, I just want to be with you. I don't want to be anywhere else in heaven, Lord. I just want to be right in your throne room. Just whatever, give me something to do in there. I just want to see you all the time. So that's great for them. Now, but for us, you may be saying, wait, wait a minute, Pastor. That's a great reward for them. That's awesome that they got to do that, that they get to do that. But what about everybody else that's decided to accept God's calling? What about all of us that are here today? What about, hey, what do we get? You know, if you want to be like Peter, Lord, what, what treasures in heaven do we get? Look at verse 29. He addresses us. And everyone, that would be me and you today, and everybody since the disciples, since our day to day, and everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. What an awesome hope that this gives us. We will receive a hundredfold in return and eternal life. But if you notice, in case you're not, I'm going to bring it up. Jesus just repeated himself again from where you ask. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 10, 37 through 39. Again, he's always repeating. I I realize more in this sermon than I probably ever have how many times Jesus repeats himself. And the Bible is just kind of this, 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 this kind of like this repeating loop of things that are important to God. And he just keeps bringing them up over and over and over again. Just different topics and just different times, different circumstances. But yet he just brings them up. Matthew 10, 37 through 39, he says... In a little bit of a different way. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. So when he says here, he who have left father and mother for my name's sake, that's the same thing. He who loves father more than more than me is not worthy of me. So in a sense, you deciding to love him more than you love your mother and father, that's leaving them. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Same idea. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. That's the first part of what he said in Matthew 19 and 39. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Same thing he says about eternal life on our second part, Matthew 19, about eternal life. Since you've followed me, since you've done these things, you'll receive a hundredfold, and you'll receive eternal life. That's pretty cool. Now he closes with verse 30. And we're going to talk about why, because it kind of just, at first I just thought, wait a minute, verse 30, it just sticks out like a sore thumb. It doesn't really, it doesn't even really fit. Lord, I was praying, I was thinking to myself, Lord, do you want me to do another sermon just on this one verse? But then I had to pray and God had to show it to me. Verse 30 closes with this. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. What is he saying to us? It doesn't seem to fit. What is he seeing? Or what is he saying? Well, God showed me this. Jesus being the awesome teacher that he was is bringing the disciples back to his original part of the teaching on the rich. Let me explain. Remember, our section starts out with Jesus teaching about him how impossible it is for a rich or wealthy person to get to heaven. The disciples throw him a question. Hey, Jesus, 
If that's the case, who then can be saved? It brought him back to cover the fact that we cannot save ourselves by any good work. And that salvation comes by God's calling and our response to that call. To repentance toward God and away from our sin as our master and placing our faith totally in Christ. So the meaning of this verse in context. Many who are first will be last. Think about it. Who would I and you consider to be first in our world today? Well, of course, those that are wealthy, those that have power, those that have prestige, those that have, you know, authority, you know, the president, you know, rich movie stars, you know, big billionaires, you know, like who these other guys like, you know, I can't think of any names off the top of my head. I don't want to be wrong about saying them, but all these billionaires and millionaires that seem to have it all to us. Hey, they seem to be first now. Okay, they would be considered by us to be first now because of how we see them. But in actuality, Jesus said those who are first will be last. In actuality, spiritually, the majority of the wealthy won't go to heaven because they worship their wealth as their God and not God. So they will be last when it comes to eternity or not getting in at all. Now, I did say, notice, that the majority, <clears throat> not all wealthy, won't go to heaven. Why did I say the majority and not all? Well, first of all, because Jesus said here, 30, but many who are first will be last. So being there that the first are the rich and the wealthy, he says many. He doesn't say all. Why did he not say all, considering that it's harder for a wealthy person to get into the kingdom of heaven than for a rich man to go to heaven? Important note. Jesus said it's impossible. Well, making wealth your God is not something people have to do. Wealthy people can make it to heaven as long as they live in repentance toward God and away from sin and they don't let their money become their God and they, and they put all their faith in Christ and surrender to Him and desire to follow Him and make Him their God instead of their money. And I know some wealthy people in my life, I've known some wealthy people, that the money is not their God. And they really love Jesus Christ. And that money has its place in their lives, but it's not their ruler. So you see, there are some wealthy that will make it to heaven. But again, they have to be living in repentance toward God and not allowing the money to be their God and, and, and allow Jesus Christ to be their God and to surrender to him. So many, though, that are first will be last. So the majority of the wealthy won't be going to heaven. They won't be inheriting heaven. Just like that camel's not going to make it through that eye of that needle, the majority of wealthy are not going to be getting into heaven. But he goes on to say, but those who are last now, or, or not wealthy or rich, now, spiritually, he said, they're going to be first. Those of us that we see, oh, that guy, he, he's, he's just a nothing, you know, yeah, or he just, you know, he's a bit common, common man, he just works normal jobs, not, not wealthy, I mean, he has a nice family and all, but, you know, but Jesus is saying that that man is going to be the one first in the kingdom of heaven. That man's going to be the one to get to heaven first. Praise God. But I want to make a special note. It has to be said. Just because you're not wealthy, just because you may be of average wealth, just because you may be of average finances, does not give you a free ticket into heaven either. If you're not living in repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ, whether you have a dollar or whether you have a zillion dollars, it's not going to make a difference to God. 
Whether you, If you're not living the way he wants you to live, if you haven't turned your life over to him, put your life in his hands, it doesn't matter how much money you have or how little money you have, you won't be last and you won't go to the kingdom of heaven at all. But according to Jesus in our section of scripture, according to him, the odds are better for you if you're not wealthy because you have less of a tendency to make wealth your God. Praise God. So intense scripture today. Huh? Pretty intense. I mean, a camel going through the eye of a needle. Jesus made some pretty powerful statements. You know, with man things are impossible, but with God all things are possible. So in closing, I want us to think, I want us to slow down. I want us to think something. I want, to t- I want us to take some of the things we heard today at a personal level. And I want you to ask yourself a very important question today. Okay, I want this to hit home. Intently, have you heard God calling you and drawing you to Jesus? Have you felt in your life God drawing you and calling you to come to Jesus? And if so, have you taken the steps the disciples took? Go back to verse 27. This is God's ideal response, all of Scripture. Peter said to him, see, now we have left all and followed you. Have you repented all? Have you turned away from all things that rule you? Have you turned away from all of your gods? And have you decided to follow Christ? Because that's God's ideal picture there of what somebody has to do. They have to be able to respond to God. His calling is wrong in that way. You see, the disciples dropped everything and they followed Jesus. They took a step of repentance toward God and away from self-ownership, away from sinfulness, and they put all their faith and their hope in Jesus Christ to save them. And this is what God wants from people. This is how we get to heaven, by responding to God's calling and His drawing and repenting and turning to Christ. Would this be how you see yourself? Would this be how others see you? If you have, then your life has changed. If you have picked up that calling, if you have surrendered, if you have made that decision, then your life should be constantly changing. Is your life changing, think about this, to be more like God in Christ every day and away from sinful things and away from, you know, I do what I want to do because that's just what I want to do or is it, is, it, is it going towards sin or staying in sin and I'm just staying the same? Are you, are you becoming more godly as you live daily Or are you not becoming more godly as you live daily? Because somebody that's in repentance, somebody that's living for God, somebody that's turned their heart to God and puts their faith in Jesus Christ is going to change. We're going to live a different type of lifestyle. We're not going to live the same way. We're not going to do the same things. We're going to, our faith is in a different place. Our, our actions and our words and our, our thoughts are all going to be starting to become different. Because if you're not experiencing this change, the Bible says that you're in trouble. 
In the Bible, in the book of Acts, it talks about how the first time that the, that the disciples were called Christians was in the book of Antioch. Well, a Christian is somebody that's made a decision to follow Christ or a disciple of Christ. If you are living in repentance toward God and faith totally in Jesus Christ and following Him, people are going to notice. And you just simply won't be living a sinful, willful lifestyle anymore. Now things are going to change. In fact, so much change so that Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature or a new creation. Excuse me. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You see, if we're in Christ, if we're abiding in Him, then we're living for Him, then we're seeking Him, then we're talking to Him, and we're reading His Word, and we're following His Word, and doing what His Word says to do. And that is just the opposite of living for yourself, trusting in your things. When you have a problem, you don't think about how you can fix it anymore. Now you go to God and say, God, how do you, how do, how do you want me to fix this problem? Or God, can you, can you fix this problem for me? Because I don't have anywhere to go. Now you're going to him for everything. You're a new creation. That's how God sees you if you're there. Are you new today in Christ? Are you following him and putting your faith in him and living in repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ? At this point, maybe you realize I'm not. Maybe you realize I've not done that. You know, I I mean, I I believe I'm a Christian. I mean, you say that you're a Christian, but you don't even, you didn't even really know what response was involved, you know, for you to do, you know, that we just talked about today. I mean, you didn't even know those things. What do you mean mean repentance toward God and faith in Jesus? Yeah, I believe. Hey, I I believe, Pastor, that I'm, I'm good. Well, no. The Bible says if you haven't taken a step of repentance away from your sinful life and away from you as you owning your own life and doing whatever you want to do and put your faith totally in Christ and follow Him, then you're not saved. Then you're not walking with God. So if you say that you're a Christian but didn't even know the steps involved to get you know to becoming one, if that's you today, then please hear me. Because what did I just tell you about today? I told you about the way to be saved, which means God is calling you and drawing you. He wanted you to hear this for a reason. He's saying, hey, guys, my my child, my son, my daughter, I want you to be mine, but you got to do the, you got to take a step. You got to answer my call. You have to stop living for you and you have to decide to live for me. Hebrews 3.15 puts it this way. Today, if you will hear his voice, notice God said there, if you will hear his voice. Not when. God's calling out to people all the time. He says today, if you will hear his voice. That means, are you going to hear him? Or are you going to reject him? Are you going to listen or are you not going to listen? He says, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. That means as you hear his voice today, respond. Turn your life to Christ. Get down on your knees, repent of your sins. Call out to God and ask him to save you and ask him to change you and put all your faith in Christ 
to save you and not in yourself anymore. God is calling you today and drawing you to Christ today through me because His desire is that you, verse 27, that you leave all and you follow Jesus Christ. That's what He wants from you. That's what He wants from everybody. Will you answer the call? Will you respond to God today? Or will you let this opportunity again pass you by? Please don't let it pass you by. Turn to Christ and be saved. Surrender all. Leave all. Drop everything. And come unto Christ and start following Him. Please, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this message. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your love. And Lord, not if, but when. Today, today, if you will hear his voice, if you will hear, will you hear it or will you reject it? Is the question that you're asking people that are listening to this message today. You call yourself a Christian or you believe yourself to be saved. Maybe you think you've been baptized and that saved you. Maybe you think you said, you know, I prayed a prayer one time. Jesus, you know, I love you. Uh, come into my heart and, and, and save me. But, but Lord, their lives are not changing. Their lives are not being transformed, Lord. Their lives are not any different today than 5 or 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years ago when they made that decision. And Lord, your word is clear. You keep bringing it up over and over and over and over again, Lord. You keep saying it over and over again. This is what you must do to be saved. Respond, surrender all, follow Christ. This is not just one prayer, Lord. It's a heart, a life. I need you, God. I can't live without you anymore. So I pray that today, dear God, that any listening to this message that aren't there, They would realize that it's not hopeless because they're hearing this message. And in this message, you're calling them to you. And all they have to do is respond. I pray that they wouldn't be like the rich young ruler who walked away and was saddened because he had great wealth. But I pray that they would be like the disciples who dropped everything. We left everything behind, Lord, and we followed you. Lord, and then we can receive a hundredfold in eternal life. Bring them to your throne, dear God. Bring them to the cross and draw them to Christ. Change their hearts, Lord, and save their souls. Lord, I love you and we love you. Gospel Saving Church loves you, Lord. Me and my family, we love you. And we praise you. And we ask these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen. Praise God. Everyone, it's Pastor Ed here, and thank you so much for listening to the message. It's my prayer that you were encouraged and challenged with what you heard today to be a doer of God's Word and not a hearer only, because your life will soon be passed, and only what you've done for Jesus Christ will last. If you live in the Dallas, Texas area, we want to invite you to come to our little house church here in McKinney, Texas. Sunday mornings, our service is at 1015, and the directions can be found on our website. 
Also, if you have any prayer requests or questions, or maybe you believe God has called you to support this church financially, please go to gospelsavingchurch.com and click on the appropriate links. I would love to hear from you personally. God loves you very much. Please love Him back by the way you live your life. God bless you, and have a wonderful day.